king of rock himself, Elvis Sinisek. Welcome to MMA Life TV. Uh, good to be the king. Um, thanks for having me on. It's always a, a pleasure to chat about um, what I'm doing and what I've been up to and where I've come from. Nice one, nice one. Mate, I, I can see you're at the gym. Tell us a bit, uh, how, how has COVID impacted the, the business and, and where are you guys at currently now? Um, well, uh, my, my gym is King's Academy of Martial Arts. Um, we teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai, boxing, wrestling, MMA, kids classes. We have hot yoga. Um, I'm very big on both um, training and recovery. We also have a sauna, ice bath, hyperbaric oxygen chamber, hot yoga sessions, so, and a strength and conditioning room. So I try and have all, all aspects of our training covered. Uh, same as all the gyms. Um, we had to shut down for just under three months. So uh, it was a difficult time. Um, obviously, our income stream pretty much disappeared. We did have some members... Uh, supporting, which we really appreciated, uh, just enough to keep um, some income coming in to, to kind of pay the bills. Uh, the government did come on board, but obviously we had to wait a while before that uh, actually came uh, into effect. But we've got the, the government assistance happening. Um, we've managed to stay open. We've just recently reopened. Uh, obviously, we've reopened with the, the social distancing requirements. We've got only a couple more days until July 1st when um, the, the full contact comes back into uh, play. So I know we're looking forward to it. I know all the students are looking forward to it. Um, it has been a difficult time. And from my perspective, uh, a little bit disappointing um, with how the government have kind of treated this. Yep. What, what, what have you been disappointed in specifically? Well, so I'm um, kind of very anal when I do stuff. I can get quite obsessive. I mean... Uh, if you check out my academy, as I said, I pretty much have everything here relations to uh, martial arts. And when I get into something, I, I kind of take a deep dive. So um, when we went into lockdown, I didn't have a lot of, um, I had a lot of spare time. So um, I actually got quite intrigued by uh, the, the COVID situation. Uh, it's very closely related to health and nutrition, which um, again is something I'm very much uh, keen on and I, I take a deep dive and, I'm constantly learning about. So I started uh, reading up and, and watching podcasts, looking at the statistics and trying to understand what was going on. Yep. Um, and initially, like everyone else, I, I was concerned because it, it was an unknown uh, element. But as the, the situation has evolved, we've kind of started to see that the numbers um, are very specific to who they're affecting. So a lot of elderly people, people with immune um, dysfunction, metabolic dysfunction, so things like uh, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, obesity, um, and specifically vitamin D uh, deficiency. So the general um, healthy mid-age to younger generation aren't really greatly affected by this. A lot of them have what's called asymptomatic um, infection, which means they get it, they don't really show any signs. Yep. But of course they can uh, spread it, but asymptomatic asymptomatic spread is much lower than symptomatic spread. Yep. So once I started realizing the people that have been effect, mostly affected by it are those, as I mentioned, with metabolic dysfunction. What can help metabolic dysfunction? Exercise. So closing gyms just seems counterintuitive because even though they say, oh, you can train at home, 
if everyone could train at home and would train at home, they'd have been doing it and gyms would have gone out of business a long time ago. So sure. martial arts schools, gyms, all these places should have been open because people need to stay fit and healthy. They were telling us to stay home, stay indoors. And a big part of it is vitamin D deficiency is also very high on those with high mortality rates. So we want to be outside. We want to be in the sun. So shutting down beaches, telling people not to go out, um, very poor, uh, poor advice. Part of the problem of getting stuck at home is you get stuck in front of the TV. What do you do when you're watching TV? You go out, you get junk food. What does junk food do? It elevates your glucose in your system. It um, raises uh, your insulin, which again leads to pre-diabetes, diabetes, leads to obesity because you're sitting on the couch, you're not moving around, so you're going to mm. be putting on weight. You're not training like you used to. Yep. So all these things which should be done to help us improve our health, which would help fight uh, COVID, yep. are kind of being shut away. We've kind of been put into a situation where now we're actually making our um, – chance of infection and chance of bad results increase because we're in lockdown. We would have been much better off sticking to a more um, social distancing type situation where we can um, use the social distancing, wear masks, more uh, general hygiene. Um, if anything, show that Taiwan was the, probably one of the first countries to respond to it. Yeah. Um, and they did basically smart social distancing, masks, hygiene, and self-isolation when the situation came up. Um, and they have some of the lowest um, rates of infection. So it just shows that lockdown wasn't necessary to uh, mitigate the results um, of this virus. So that, that's kind of why I'm a bit disappointed. And once the statistics came out, I can understand the initial reaction being, look, you know what, this is what we need to do. Fair enough. You've got to kind of take extreme measures sometimes. But once the data starts coming in, once you start uh, understanding it, you need to make adjustments. Even now, um, I'm seeing a lot of scaremongering in the media. They're saying, oh, infections are going up because of this and that. Of course, infections are going up. The main thing is, is deaths going up. If deaths are not skyrocketing, infections is irrelevant. We yeah. actually want to spread infection because that's how... Um, we develop immunity, immunity. Yeah. and the goal is long-term herd immunity. So we shouldn't fear infection. And as long as our medical system isn't overwhelmed, we should be able to handle all the extreme cases. Are people going to die? Yes, they're going to die. People die each year from the flu. People die each year from numerous respiratory diseases, from obesity, from um, diabetes, from car accidents, uh, from tripping down the stairs. People are going to die. Do I want them to die? No. But we have to accept that it is going to happen as long as we've done everything we can to mitigate the situation. And what we want to do is have our hospital systems able to handle it. Then we've done enough. Um, so I guess that's why I'm a little bit disappointed. I was kind of hoping um, the Australian government would kind of adjust a little bit more, um, start uh, looking at the data a little bit uh, deeper. If you have a look at the actual statistics for COVID, we're currently about 480,000 deaths uh, worldwide and the flu season is pretty much over obviously our flu season is just starting but when you look at yeah. um, the world numbers with Europe and America and um, uh, Asia and all that their flu season is ended and if you go back to 2017 2018 their flu season ended about this same time so we had about 480,000 deaths from COVID 
we had 650,000 deaths from the flu. It was an extreme um, flu, it was very severe, but almost 50% more deaths from the flu, yet there was no lockdown, no social distancing, no change in anything. What you also have to remember is with COVID, we have no treatments, we have no vaccine. With the flu, we have treatments, we have vaccines, yet even with the treatments and vaccines, it's still a 50% higher death rate than what COVID is. So obviously, in 2018, we were in a much worse situation than we are, yet no one did anything about it. The problem with COVID is fear of the unknown. So because it was something new, everyone kind of freaked out. Um, they reacted in a very fearful way. Um, but once they started understanding it, they should have kind of pulled back. It's not the first coronavirus that has come out. There are seven other coronaviruses uh, out there. Four of them are responsible for the common cold. The other two are SARS and MERS, which are a little bit more extreme. But once again, once we got those under control, things returned to normal. And it should really be the same here uh, for COVID. So, I mean, that's, again, that's why I'm a little bit disappointed. As I said, I still follow the government's recommendations and I, I follow the rules. Um, but that doesn't mean I have to be happy about doing it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it does sound like when you go into something, you really go deep, mate. The quoting of the statistics and all that, I can... I can definitely see that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, I mean, as I said, when I enjoy something, if, if you were to see my photography room, I have camera equipment everywhere. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the gym, the gym here, and yeah, and my nutrition and uh, COVID stuff, I've gone um, pretty deep. And uh, look, I'm still kind of looking deeper because obviously it's still an evolving situation. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest thing that's come out of it recently is that vitamin D deficiency. If you are deficient in vitamin D, your outcomes are worse. Now that doesn't mean go out and start taking vitamin D tablets because they don't seem to, if you look at a lot of the research when you go into nutrition, vitamin D supplementation via pills doesn't provide the same benefits as vitamin D when you go out into the sun or get yes. it from your yeah. food. It yeah. does assist a little bit, um, but you should be predominantly going outside. I think what a, it has a lot more to do with it is what we do that gets us the vitamin D. And that means going outdoors, being in nature. Um, and that's where you, you build your immunity. You're in the dirt, you're in nature, you're playing with animals, you're outside, you're getting sun. So sun raises your vitamin D level, but it's the activities that you do out there that I believe um, are just as beneficial and not just the vitamin D level itself. But that is a good indicator that if your vitamin D levels are low, you're not doing these things and you're going to be at higher risk for COVID. Of course, of course. Look, let's talk to the unknown. So you're known as a pioneer of MMA in Australia. I'm really interested to, to get get your feel of, you know, Cage Combat 1, right? That, that was the, the first yes. MMA event in Australia. What, what was that night? What was what? How how did that all come about? And what was the what was the feeling in that room for those people that for the first time in Australia saw something like this live? Like, can you recount so, that night? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I'm going to take a couple of steps back. So I got into martial arts through Bruce Lee. So um, if you go back to my era, and again, that's given away my age a little bit. Yeah. Uh, in the seventies, Bruce Bruce Lee was very popular. I had all his VHS tapes, so not on um, Blu-ray or not on um, USB sticks. So, you know, it was the, the old VHS versus beta era. Um, I used to watch all these movies. I really wanted to be a martial artist. Uh, I started with judo as a little kid. 
but I really wanted to do punching and kicking. And then I moved into Taekwondo. And um, so I was doing martial arts and then I got to, uh, to university and I stopped. So while I was at university, I started doing um, other sports at the, uh, at the uni. So me and my friends each month would pick a new sport and we'd play it for a month. And we'd go to another sport, play it for a month. One of the sports we picked up was volleyball, which led to beach volleyball, um, which I became, I started traveling up to Sydney with. While I was in Sydney, uh, sorry, while I was still in Canberra, um, John Will, who, um, who you're probably familiar with, who um, is the head of Machado Australia, brought Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to Australia. Um, he started traveling overseas for his Blitz magazine, which he'd started, and he was going to, um, Indonesia to train and compete in Salat, went to India to the wrestling pits uh, and ended up in Brazil and discovered this little known martial art called Gracie Jiu Jitsu. Mm. Started training, uh, I believe, uh, with some of the Gracies, but uh, ended up meeting the Machado brothers, Hegan and all that. And I'm reading about this and I was really intrigued by this, this sport. And so I wanted to do some Jiu Jitsu, but in Canberra there was nothing, but I found a Jun fan school, which is um, Bruce Lee style. So Bruce Lee developed Jeet Kune Do, but before it became Jeet Kune Do, it was known as Jun Fan. And it had um, elements of Salat and the defense, uh, some of the striking from Muay Thai and a little bit of grappling from Jiu Jitsu. And I kind of, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm getting to do all these bits and pieces. So I started getting into it. Um, and I, I was like, wow, this is, this is cool. And then um, I was also playing beach volleyball. So this is where it kind of all comes in together. Yep. And I decided I wanted to move to um, Sydney because up in Sydney, there was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. Anthony Lange was teaching. He was one of John Will's uh, students. He had a school up there. Uh, he was in Manly. Manly was where the beach volleyball was being played. So it just seemed smart for me to move up to Sydney and up to that area. So I moved up there, started training uh, with Anthony Lange, was playing pro beach volleyball. And then while I'm up there, again, Blitz Magazine comes out um, and this event called Australasian UFC, you know, send your nominations in. I'm like, oh, this is absolutely fantastic. I'd already heard about it. One of my friends at my old job in Canberra had given me the UFC 2 tape where I'd saw, uh, seen um, Hoist Gracie choke out all these monsters. And, and that's kind of part of what have inspired me along with um, John Wills Magazine to kind of get into jiu-jitsu. So I saw the opportunity and I, I'm like, you know what? This sounds great. I want to jump in there. I want to test myself. Now, it was only ever supposed to be a one fight. I was only ever supposed to go in there. Um, as a kid, I was picked on a little bit. I was bullied. Um, and that's part of the reason I also got into the martial arts, looked up to Bruce Lee because he was a small guy beating up big guys. I wanted to be able to protect myself. Yep. But I'd never really gotten into any major confrontations. Obviously, a couple of scuffles at school and stuff like that. Um, and then here I had this opportunity to kind of jump into a cage fight event. Now, it was called Australasian UFC when they were advertising it. But obviously, sure. after legal action um, from the UFC, it got renamed to Cage Combat 1. Gotcha. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I sent my application in. I wanted to go in there. I wanted to test my personal courage and fortitude you know what would happen if i was in a self-defense situation someone where someone wants to to hurt me would i just fall over and cry like a little girl or would i have the courage to actually stand up and fight so that was part of 
Um, I wanted to see how I would react to it. And the second part was, well, how, how do my skills actually translate? Does my striking, does my grappling, uh, does it actually work? So it was kind of a, a twofold experiment. And um, so, oh, just give me a second. Oh, good. Sorry, I just had someone else calling there. No worries. Um, it was a twofold experiment just to kind of see how I reacted which comes up to the next part where you're talking about. Now, it was the first ever event uh, in Australia. Um, it was very new. When it first was announced, it was a, you know, like people go, oh, my God, this is, you know, human cockfighting and, you know, it's fighting to the death. Oh, my God, it's going to be too brutal. And as the event got closer, um, the CSA started trying to shut it down because they, obviously they didn't understand it. They didn't want um, this... This, this event to go ahead and they had all jurisdiction over any boxing kickboxing or wrestling so they were trying to shut it down so the promoter came to us and said look if you train in wrestling you can't say you've got to say judo or grappling or something like that if you do kickboxing you have to call it karate okay. if you do um, boxing you have to call it some sort of martial art because we're making it a martial art versus martial art event Sure. So that's kind of how they kind of manage it uh, to get it again, uh, to get it to happen. Now, I wasn't accepted because the promoter said, look, you're not a name. Uh, you don't have enough experience. You're pretty much a nobody, but, you know, we'll keep you on uh, on hold if any, anything happens. So I basically called him every single day um, in the lead up to the event. And about 10 days before, um, some of the fighters who'd already not kind of nominated to compete, I think they started cross training and they went to some of the other gyms that actually had a little bit of mixed martial arts going on. You know, yep. uh, Larry Papadopoulos was doing Shudo and Pancras and Chris Hazeman was up in um, Queensland with rings and uh, which was kind of an MMA uh, pro wrestling type uh, promotion. And they started realizing that maybe they weren't ready to jump into a cage and do this sort of fighting. So yep. um, I couldn't tell you who the names were, but I know quite a few of the names just pulled out at the last second. And then um, one of the days I've called up, going, hey, Randy, how are you going? Uh, any spots? He goes, you wouldn't believe it, but we've got a spot. Are you, are you happy to jump in? I'm like, I'm ready to go now. Put me in. So um, I got put in uh, to the show. And then, um, again, it was... An amazing experience when I walked out into that arena like it, it actually had 5,000 people it was in Darling Harbour yeah. um, it was crazy I, you know like the, the people there didn't know what to expect they were super excited I think one of the earlier events had already happened one of the earlier matches I think I was the second or third match so they'd already gotten a feel of what was going on and they loved it. They were excited. The crowd was going off. It was absolutely pumped. I'm even getting the uh, goosebumps yeah. um, remembering it. And so this this environment, I'm walking out and it's absolutely electric and I'm looking left, I'm looking right and I'm just seeing all these people and hearing these noise and I walk into the cage and my opponent is already over there. So I walk across and I'm looking across at him and I'm looking around and then this the gate closes and I still remember and it's just this clang that just rings in my mind. As mm. soon as that, that gate shut and the clang, everything just went And yep. the only thing I could see, the only thing I could hear was my opponent and the referee. Every, the whole world just disappeared for that moment. 
The referee goes, start. The fight happened. It was, you know, a, a, quite a quick fight. It went, I think, for about a minute, minute and a half or something like that. Um, and then suddenly it's over and then everything just goes. And the crowd starts screaming and chanting my name and Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. And um, I'm just like, whoa, this, this feeling is a rush. And what was supposed to be um, a, a one-off fight turned into um, an MMA career. You've fought in a different couple of different promotions, right? U- UFC, K1, Pancras, Cage Rage. Of these organizations and experiences, like what really sticks out to you? when you think of your totality of your career? Um, yeah, so um, I've fought pretty much all over the world, all the different organizations. Um, look, they, they, they all have um, their pluses, their minuses. I mean, when it came down to it, it's like um, the biggest event I'd ever fought in front of was the K1GP in 2000, uh, where yep. I faced Frank Shamrock. Uh, or something like almost 80,000 people in the Tokyo Dome, which was just wow. insane. It's just hard to, to comprehend. But um, the most atmosphere I've ever felt in an event was a, a UFC event. The UFC events just go um, absolutely crazy. The, the atmosphere in there is um, through the roof. The, the fans are loud. They're vibrant. Uh, they're excited. They're, you know, um, whereas the, the Japanese fans tend to be a little bit more reserved. They're, they seem to be a little bit more educated. They get excited with a lot of the grappling exchanges and things like that, where yep. obviously the, the, the UFC fans tend to um, prefer the striking exchanges and the big knockouts and, and things like that. Um, everyone was always very professional. Um, all the organizations that I've ever fought at have always treated me well. I don't have any complaints in that regard. Um, obviously, the UFC, I, I spent my mo- most time at, and they've always really looked after me. Um, I never had any issues. Obviously, I'd like to be around today with the, the sort of money that they're making. And, yep. um, you know, they're making bank. Um, and yeah, they're still not happy with the, the amount of money that they're making because, obviously, they're not making as much as other professional sports. So, you know, it is a difficult situation. But then when you go back to when I was fighting and it was – Pretty much just for pocket change, you know, where the fighters back in the day were doing it because they loved combat sports, um, because they were fighters at heart and they wanted to, to challenge themselves. They weren't doing it to get rich or to become famous. Um, it was more about that personal journey. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's talk about the UFC. Tell me, how do you go from beating Jeff Horn to, to fighting for the title in Tito? Normally there's a progression there, but how, how did that play play itself out? Look, um, so I had a kind of difficult situation. I was in Australia and I was one of the first internationals, you know, to kind of come over there with the, with the UFC. I fought on the first ever Zufa show. Sure. So I'm going to, again, jump back a little bit. So I'm back. I'm from around the days before the internet. Wasn't really what it is today. You know, yep. it was fairly new. Um, there were no uh, YouTube. There was no Facebook. There was no social media. Um, the only way we kind of contacted was via email, there were message boards, things like that where we could share information, but it was quite limited. Um, and one of the um, communication methods we had was what was called a mailing list. So everyone would join this mailing list 
and then you would email to the, the server and then it would go out to everyone and then you'd reply to you know whichever po uh, email you wanted to. Um, and yep. obviously, because I was in a different country and I was using my work email, I couldn't have emails coming in and out. So I went on to what was called the digest version. So at the end of each night, all the emails would be sent in a single um, work, uh, notepad document. Then I would kind of go through and I would reply to the particular people that I wanted to respond to in it. And you kind of got chatting. Now on that mailing list um, were, were two guys. Um, one uh, was the promoter for an event called UCC, Universal Combat Challenge. Later on became known as TKO, which is where uh, GSP uh, came from. Yep. And another person was this little known guy called Joe Silva, who was assistant to uh, John Peretti. Yep. So um, I'd already hit up the UFC about coming over and fighting and, and I'd spoken to John Peretti and then he kind of got back to me and got, went, look, um, financially, it's just not worth uh, us flying you out and paying you to fight. And I'm like, I'll fight for free if I have to. I just want to come out and fight. And yep. it just wasn't, it was quite um, exorbitant, the, the fees, the costs for flights from Australia back then. And, you know, myself, cool. a corner and accommodation and then flying me back. And so, you know, and this was at the SEG days. And so Peretti went, no, it's not going to happen. I went, okay, fair enough. Um, as I said, I met the, the, the two uh, other guys. And now what happened was, is I contacted UCC and they said, look, and I'm like, look, I want to fight light heavyweight. And they're like, oh, look, we've got too many light heavyweights, um, but we need some heavyweights. Would you be willing to fight at heavyweight? And I'm like, yeah, I'll look, oh, I'll do anything. I don't care. When I fought in Australia, it was, I fought for the heavyweight belt when I really wasn't a heavyweight. Um, you know, I won the heavyweight belts, uh, I think, at roughly at the same weight as I would have been when I was fighting light heavyweight. Okay. Um, and that's without cutting or anything like that. So um, I wasn't supposed to fight on their first event. I was supposed to go into their second event. So their first event, they had a heavyweight title fight. And then the second event, they had a four-man tournament with four heavyweights. And the winner of that tournament was going to challenge for the against whoever won the title in their first event. Yep. Then about... Uh, a week before uh, the event was uh, supposed to go on, um, one of the uh, main events had a car accident. So um, they were, I can't remember the name, but they were uh, a French fighter. So in Paris, had a car, car accident, broke three vertebrae, and they were fused in his neck. So he had to obviously pull out of pull out of the show, and he actually surprisingly still flew there to support the show, which um, yeah, right, kind of impressive. Um, and anyway, so they called me and they've gone, look, we need someone to fight, um, chemo for the heavyweight belt. Are you up for it? I'm like, throw me in, send me the flights, me and my corner will come up and we'll do that. And so, um, I got booked in for the flights and then while we're fl flying over, all this commotion started happening where suddenly chemo was supposed to turn up. He didn't turn up. He's not replying to any of the calls from the promoters. And then on the day, uh, I think on the day I arrived, but before I actually get there, so I'm still in the air, um, a post goes up on AD Combat. So adcombat.com was the, the, the news source back in the day. That's where everyone got their MMA and yep. uh, no-gi um, information. They were part, uh, kind of linked back to the first ever ADCC in 1998, uh, which, by the way, I did compete in as well. Yep. Um, 
on AD Combat, there was a photo of Chemo holding up a hand. He had his fingers in a splint. He was holding up an x-ray, apparently broke his finger. And the promoters are going, well, why didn't he tell us? He didn't contact us, didn't say anything. Um, this, this post just turned up on AD Conduct. So they contacted and said, look, even if you can't fight, jump on, the, we'll, we'll rebook your flight, come up, you can apologize to the fans and you can challenge for the belt on the next show. And they, he's like, oh, okay. And he did, he, they, they booked the flights and he never actually ended up jumping on the flight. And again, <laughs> I don't know why or what happened, um, yeah. whether there were other issues, but he never turned up. So I, I land in uh, Montreal because that's where the event was happening. And there was no main event. They didn't have anyone to fight. So they've, they've gone, would you fight Jeremy Horn? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. He's close to my weight. I'm happy to do that. Yep. They contacted Jeremy and um, I'd already fought Frank Shamrock earlier. So I'd fought Frank Shamrock in K1, went to a five-round decision. I lost the decision um, to Frank. It was an MMA match on a K1 show. So it was one of the um, first um, MMA uh, thing. I think it was only one before, which may have been uh, chemo and someone. But anyway, so um, he decided not to take the match. And so they said, look, uh, we've got a couple of other opponent options for you. Would you fight Tom Erickson? I said, you know what? I would fight Tom Erickson. Um, I was lined up to fight him in Australia two years earlier. Um, but then the promotion fell through. It was meant to be the Cage Combat 2 was supposed to come up. I was supposed to fight Tom Erickson in the super fight. And I said, look, I'm happy to fight him. But for, to fight someone that side, he was 300 pounds. I'm like, I can't do it on a week's notice. I, look, I need to train specifically for him. I want to. I need to do some strength and conditioning. I, I can't come in unprepared. Yep. Um, and they said, well, what about Dan Saburn? And I'm like... He's 280 pounds. There's not much difference between him. Like I said, look, if it makes it easier, put those two in for the title fight, throw me on an undercard uh, uh, main bout or whatever. I'm happy to fight whoever. Um, but, you know, these guys are just, just too big. And they're like, okay, just give us a while. They went back and they went, oh, we've got Dave Benito. And I went, well, isn't he? He was like 260, 270 in the UFC, wasn't he? Yeah, because uh, he fought um, in the UFC also earlier, and they went, no, 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 we spoke to him, and he's only about 230 pounds, and I'm like, oh, 230, oh, that's not too bad. I was about 200. I told them I was about 210, um, so which is about I was about 90 kilos. So he was saying he was about, I think about 110 or 115, and I'm like, you know, 20 kilo disadvantage, I can live with that. It's not, it's not 30 or 40 kilos. Yeah. It's a lot, but I'm happy I'm happy to, to kind of go for it. And so I accepted the fight. I ended up uh, getting matched with Benito. And I weighed myself beforehand. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm really light. I'm like under 210. I told them I'm 210. So what I did is I, I went to the gym at, at the, that was there, and I got ankle weights and wrapped them around my ankles, <laughs> put them no underneath way. <laughs> my tracksuit, I got a couple of small hand weights, put them in my pockets. Yeah. And I went in and I didn't take my tracksuit. I can't remember if I, I may have taken my top off, but I've kept my tracksuit on because I had all these weights underneath. And I've weighed in at, at something like 211 or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, right. but I, I was like, I was probably like just over 200 pounds. Um, so I would have been just around 90 kilos and I was 
and I weighed in at that, that 95 kilo mark with the, the ankle weights and the weights in my pocket. And then yeah. Dave Benito comes on. And I'm expecting him to be about 230. He jumps on the scales. And again, he's wearing track suits and T-shirts. And it goes 265 pounds. And I say, what? What? <laughs> like, it's the heavyweight limit. And I went to the promoters and I said, you told me he was 230. And they go, oh, he told us he was about 240, 245. And I'm like, so you still lied to me. I go, I probably would have taken it if you told me 240. Yeah. Um, and because he underestimated his weight, they underestimated his weight to me. So what I was expecting to be about a, a 20 or, you know, at max a 20 kilo weight difference ended up being 65 pounds, which was, you know, 30 kilos or something, 30 plus kilos difference. And I'm like, oh, it is what it is. Um, and I actually feel I won that. I should have the UCC first ever heavyweight title. That should be around my waist. Because uh, during the match, I ended up going the distance and I lost the decision. Yep. But during the match, because he was a wrestler, I knew he was a wrestler, like so I struck with him. He didn't land anything. I was landing some good shots. Um, I was landing some really hard low kicks. So I, I'd um, really been working on my low kicks. It's something I'd used a lot in my uh, fight against Frank Shamrock. And um, and I really wanted to, to kind of use them because I knew it was important to slow down the shot of the wrestler. So I was chopping and chopping his legs over and over. So he'd take me down, he'd stick his head uh, in my chest and then just kind of try and punch. He was just pretty much... Uh, grinding me. He wasn't really because he at the start of the match when he took me down, he tried to posture up and punch, and I almost armbar trying with him. And he he got out just because he was so big. Yep. And so after that, he was very conservative. Um, and actually, at the end of the first round, I actually took him down with the single leg. Um, but the buzzer went before I was actually able to do any damage or anything. And then halfway through the second round, there were two 10-minute rounds as well. So they were kind of more the pride-style uh, rounds. Tough. Halfway through the round, I was kicking his leg, and he shoots in for a takedown. And I, I've pulled guard because uh, I wasn't trying to sprawl. I'm like, there's no point sprawling. I'm not going to stop a takedown on a guy who's 65 pounds heavier. I mean, my, my strategy <laughs> was yeah. uh, to pull guard, attack from guard, be offensive from there. If he stalled, get stood up, which was what had happened pretty much all the first round. This Halfway through the second round, he shot, and I scooted back, foot in the hip. I'd come underneath, pulled up his arm, and I had uh, a cutting arm bar. So I had his arm extended, head extended, wrist on my shoulder, uh, arms locked in around his elbow, and he's pushed off to try and drive forward to, to escape the arm bar, and his knee's dislocated. And he's going, stop, 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 stop. So I've stopped. I'm holding the cutting arm, but I'm not cranking it. So I'm, mm. you know, I'm, but I'm not letting go. So I'm like, I'm holding it until the ref says stop. Of course. And the ref goes, stop, stop, stop. So I release the submission. I'm like, yeah, I've won, I've won. <laughs> and my coach goes, look, sit down. Don't waste your energy. I'm like, I've won. He, he stopped. He, he's given up during the match. And the ref, my, ref, my coach has gone, sit down, relax, wait till we get the official decision. I'm like, oh, okay. I can't see why they would restart the match. Yep. So they've called the doctor in. And what had happened, when he was pushing forward to try and defend the cutting arbor, his knee had dislocated. Now, that oh, was okay. obviously a result of the continuous leg kicks I'd been doing during the match. 
So the, the doctor, you know, put it back into place and they said, look, it's fine. It was only a minor uh, dislocation. Um, I, I don't even know if it was the kneecap or the knee or what. Um, and then the referee has gone to him. He goes, do you want more time to rest? And Benito's gone, yeah, I want more time. He goes, if you rest more, I'm going to call the match. If you can go now, we'll restart it. And I'm like, you can't restart it. He, he's given up. Of course, yeah. And then, so they ended up restarting the match and um, he ended up taking me down, sticking his head in my chest for the rest of the match and uh, ended up going to a judge's decision because he was the hometown, he was a Canadian. Um, they couldn't give him the win after everything that had happened, so it ended up being a draw. So I kind of missed out on that belt, whereas I really feel, A, I probably should have got the decision because I did all the damage during the fight. He did zero damage uh, to me. The fight yeah. was stopped during it, so I should. I, I think I should have got a, a submission victory. Um, and I think because of that, the footage was never actually ever released. So um, it just kind of disappeared from there. So um, that kind of got me started uh, in the fighting. And then I had the fight with Frank Shamrock, went five rounds. And then the opportunity came up to get into the UFC. So what happened was, Jeremy Horn was meant to fight Cafe Dante. Now, Cafe Dante uh, was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, very uh, famous in Brazil. Yep. Um, and obviously, everyone knew who Jeremy was. He'd already choked out um, Chuck Liddell in one of his earlier fights with an arm triangle from underneath. He'd fought Minotauro and Anderson Silver overseas in some of the uh, Asian events. Yep. So he was challenging for the number one contender to face Tito. So about 10 days before the event, Cafodante pulls out because he's got a massive hole in his leg from a staph infection. The UFC have tried to um, find a replacement fighter. Nobody wants to fight Jeremy because, um, you know, he'd gone, he'd only just lost the match to Frank Shamrock, who he'd been dominating. Yep. Um, and Frank Shamrock... Um, you know, was five times defending champion, was considered the greatest um, UFC fighter at the time. He was the first uh, real MMA fighter to cross train with wrestling, grappling and striking. And Jeremy had taken it to him until he got caught in that knee bar. And so no one to take the fight. And because I'd met Jer uh, Joe Silver on this mailing list, and now we're going back to the start yep. of the story, the mailing list, I was chatting to Joe Silver now, SEG sold to Zufa. When Zufa purchased SC, uh, the UFC, they didn't bring John Peretti on board. As Joe Silva had been working with Joe, uh, with um, Peretti, um, they gave him the matchmaker role. So I already knew Joe through the mailing list. He couldn't find anyone else to fight. He knew that I had already fought Frank and went the distance. So there was history between me and um Jeremy indirectly through Frank. So we had a sure. connection. Yeah, gotcha. Jeremy lost to Frank. I went the decision. Now, if he could beat me, I was the guy that Frank couldn't beat. It would kind of redeem him and give him that shot at the belt. Yep. So now he was the matchmaker. He contacted me and goes, do you want to fight in the UFC? And I'm like, shit, yeah. This is what I've been waiting <laughs> for for years, you know. Yep. Um, and so I got the opportunity. They flew me out there. Now, this leads to another interesting story now. Same as um, I said earlier, the internet wasn't the same. So you weren't getting a lot of news. There weren't a lot of news sites. There wasn't a lot of forums or things. 
Um, what was very popular was this newspaper magazine called Full Contact Fighter. So it was a print copy. Yep. So this would go out and eventually Full Contact Fighter actually became a website and all that sort of stuff. And it was one of the, the original uh, MMA websites, but it was a paper. And what would happen is every time there was a UFC, we'd get it about a month after it would happen. Yep. So we would always get it late. So we'd kind of look at it um, in, in, you know, retrospect. And in it, they'd always have predictions. So they would get famous coaches and fighters to predict the co main event and co-main event. Now, when I went to fight Jeremy, it was the first time I ever got a copy of Full Contact Fighter before the event, <laughs> before the event that I was in. Yeah, yeah. So they had predictions for obviously the main event, which was Tito and Evan Tanner. And it was split about 50-50. Half the people thought Tito would win, half the fighters and coaches thought um, Evan would win. With mine, it was the polar opposite. It was 100%. Every single coach and fighter said Jeremy Horn would win in under three minutes by submission. Yeah. So my goal, once I read that, uh, kind of lit a fire under my ass, was to win by submission in under three minutes. Yep. I ended up getting a triangle armbar in two minutes and 59 seconds. So there I did cut it go. close. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then kind of, and that's where, you know, my, my run in the UFC started. Now, that's also where my call sign came. While I'm sitting here waiting for my hand to be raised by the referee, I'm just so excited. That, that I'm in the UFC, first time ever. I've won my match. Yep. I'm pumped. And just down here at my feet, there's this cameraman pointing up at me this, yep. and I'm sitting here and I just look down at the lens and I've just gone, <laughs> I've done the, uh, the old kiss the finger and finger point. Yep. And the UFC ended up loving it, ended up going on the end of their video montage for some of their um, events coming up. They did a video game, which I was a character on and I was at the end of the montage. So the montage finishes with me doing the finger point. So that's kind of where the, the King finger point comes from. Yep. Um, but anyway, so I ended up winning that event. After the event, me and my coach watched Tito just demolish Evan Tanner. We've sat down and gone, look, Tito's an absolute beast. Um, we really need to get quite a few fights under our belt. So we made an agreement that we would uh, work on my career. We would get some fights, work up to a title fight that we wouldn't rush into it. Yeah. A couple of, about a, about a month later, uh, about a month later, I'm at home about four o'clock in the morning get the phone call, very similar to the first phone call I got from Joe Silver when yep. I, I got the, the, the UFC call. And he's like, hey, Elvis, no one wants to fight Tito. We can't find a contender because after he demolished Evan, nobody wants to step up. Do you want to fight him? You beat the number one contender. We're going to give you the shot. I just went, yeah, I'll take it. I went back to sleep. <laughs> the next morning, I've kind of woken up and gone, oh, I think I'm fighting for the heavyweight. But I had a dream that I'm fighting for the heavyweight title. I'd like heavyweight title. Uh, sorry, back then it was called the middleweight title. And I think for my event, it became the light heavyweight title. I'm around, rough, roughly around that time. Anyway, so I've gone in to work and I've jumped on the email. And as per our phone call last night from Joe Silver, I'm like, oh, holy shit, it wasn't a dream. I am fighting for the, the, the UFC um, uh, light heavyweight belt. So I've called my coach. I said, you know how we had that discussion about... Um, taking it easy and, and not rushing uh, the career. I said, yeah, we've thrown that out the window. We're fighting Tito. He goes, well, if we're doing it, what the hell, let's get ourselves ready. And that's kind of how okay, it kind okay. of really skyrocketed um, quite early. And I've gone from 
being a, uh, an unknown to a contender to fighting for the belt in, in, a, in a really short window of time. Wow. Like, what, what a lot of stories to kind of get there. It's almost like a movie. Um, yeah, well, I, t I told you the biggest problem is shutting me up, not getting the information. <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's exactly it. Mate, looking back in your fight career, do you have any regrets? Like, if, if you had, if you could recount that, would you would you do anything differently? Look, there's always things, experience, there's always things I would do differently because experience um, shows you what would have been better. Would I have preferred to have been a little bit more uh, conservative with the approach to my career, taking better fights so I could have a longer career uh, in the sport? Yeah, of course, I would have loved to have done that, done that you know. Um, but I don't regret anything. Would I have done things differently if I get a second chance? Absolutely. Do I regret it? No. Um, it was the same. When I went to fight in UFC 110 um, in 2010 here in Australia, I was supposed to fight Chris Hazeman. It was meant to be a big grudge match, return, um, uh, rematch uh, in the UFC. And um, during the training camp, I blew my shoulder. And, you know, the UFC tried to say, said, look, do you really want to pull out? And they sent me to doctors. I got um, injections, laser and guided injections. I had all these scans. They sent me to specialists. And yeah. they've all said the same thing. There's nothing we can do. You're going to need surgery. Yeah. I could have fought with it. I could have still used my arm. But what concerned me was on my last sparring session um, is my arm gave out of me. So it actually literally stopped working during the sparring, like the last 15 seconds of the, of the sparring. And in the back of my head is I probably could have fought. And I, if I'd won early, it would have been fantastic. But if the match had gone longer, yep. I don't know if my arm would have held up. So sometimes I kind of go, should I really have taken the fight? I mean, it was this historic event, the first time in Australia. I'm the Australian UFC and MMA pioneer. You know, I really wanted to be in that event and pioneering and and pushing forward. And, you know, I did the right thing, I think, for my health. And I, I think a little bit of me was doing it for my record because I knew it was, a, it was a much bigger risk. There was more chance of me losing with the injury than if I had not been injured. Um, yeah. If it hadn't given out, even with... Because it was... It had been injured. It got an injured during the training camp. But I'd been able to work around it. Like, it was in throbbing pain for weeks. Um, but I still was able to use it. It was just that last session where it literally stopped working that kind of freaked me out. And that, and I sometimes wonder, you know, should I have done it? Yeah. Do I regret not... Do I regret pulling out? No. But I sometimes wonder what would have happened if I'd actually just gone in there and did it and just gone, what the hell, and thrown it all to the wind. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, let's talk about Kings and the gym as yes. a, as a coach, what has been the biggest evolution and progression in martial arts that you've seen, uh, from, from your time to what you see now, like the kids coming in? Well, obviously the, the kids are a lot more aware that, oh, sorry, the parents are a lot more aware of what we we're offering. They're now actually looking for jujitsu and MMA and that sort of stuff. So that's why we have. For our kids program, we have a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a Muay Thai, and wrestling program. So the different, we don't do MMA for kids because we think it's more important to work the individual skills in each area yep. rather than uh, try and put it together. I think once the skills are in place, it's easier for kids. With adults, it's a little bit different. 
adults are a little bit more aware of what's going on. So you can afford to train the individual skills and start putting them together a little earlier. Yep. Um, obviously, the sport has evolved more. It's continued to become more strategic. So, you know, using the cage to get up, using the cage to stop people getting up, um, the inter interplay between jiu-jitsu and wrestling, the interplay between wrestling and striking, the interplay between striking and grappling has really um, evolved a lot, obviously, from a mixed martial arts perspective. We still retain the individual styles. We think it's important. We still hold on to a lot of the, the, the traditions of bowing in, showing respect, building discipline for our kids and our members here. Yep. Um, also, I think something for me that really has evolved, which I wasn't aware of, which I'm trying to impart um, to my members, is recovery is just as important as training. So everyone wants to train. No one wants to really do recovery. So that's why um, at, here at King's, we have the sauna, which is probably one of the most popular after training activities. Um, we have an ice bath just out here. I have a hyperbaric oxygen chamber upstairs. Um, we also have a comp complementary uh, red light unit, which is red and near infrared light. Um, and then on top of that, we have the hot yoga classes as well. And it's all designed to complement everything we do here oh, and as well the gym the strength and conditioning yep. so i think what's really important is you need to look at it from a more holistic uh, perspective you don't want to just look at look at it from um a skill so we want to teach skills we want to teach discipline and respect we want to build a recovery protocol because you want to be able to um recover so you can come back and get more out of your training and just the, the different ele elements so i think for really for me what has evolved is making that holistic approach towards what we provide for our members. Absolutely. In, in your view, in the last couple of years, we've seen an explosion, especially in the UFC, in terms of the Oceania fighters really stand up. Obviously, you've got Hooker fighting this this weekend, Adesanya, you know, Volkanovski, Martin Nguyen. What do you attribute that to? Like, what has clicked in the last couple of years that we're... Ha have we always had this talent or, or what do you attribute that to? No, look, I, I think we've always had the talent. I just think the sport was very new. Like when I first started, it was an unknown and we pretty much developed everything that's going now. We had to go out there and experiment. We did cross training. We did functional training. Um, we were flipping tires and kettlebells and ropes and then trying to do traditional gym training and running and trying to work that out. And then we were striking and trying to work out how to strike and grapple so obviously that has evolved i think a big part of it is um australia didn't have a very strong wrestling background but through actually through the mma our wrestling is improved we yeah. don't have our wrestling program is getting better and we um i'm a part of the new south wales wrestling association because i think it is in uh important it we're part of the the um New South Wales and Australian Muay Thai Association were part of the Australian Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, the AJF. Um, so I think it's important to be um, involved with each of the individual sports and help build them up, help build our wrestling program because those wrestling skills translate to our MMA fighters, help build the Muay Thai programs because those skills translate to. And I think all that's happened is we've started to understand the different elements. We've gotten better wrestling, which we never had before. Australia's always had high level Muay Thai. Yep. We're, we're, if you go back, we're, we're one of the countries that was known for its Muay Thai. You can look at John Wayne Parr, Nathan, Nathan Corbin, um, 
uh, Stan Longinides, Sam Greco, you know, some of the great names, um, Gherkin, just, we've had great kickboxing strikers. So we had that element covered, obviously through John Will, who brought Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to Australia, our level of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has evolved. Brazilians have then come over after that. So the level of Jiu-Jitsu has increased. And then through the MMA and um, more attention being put into our wrestling programs, our wrestling programs have come up. So now all our other, our grappling and wrestling skills are now starting to come up with our striking skills and it's starting to all come together. And we've always had smart coaches and we've always had um, talented athletes and we've always had um, those things, but we didn't have all the information. Now we have all the information. We have the training programs. We have people who are now able to integrate it all together. I said, not just with the skills, but the skills, the conditioning and the mental aspect of it um, are all coming together more holistically. The information is out there. More gyms are opening up. Obviously, there's more gyms open up. Yep. We're getting more people in. So more people that would normally be um, very athletic in other sports, such as doing football, soccer, cricket, are now coming into our sport. Yep. So they're getting exposed to it. A lot of the times they're doing the, the jiu-jitsu, the wrestling, the MMA, to complement their football or something like else, but then they're realizing they enjoy this more. And so over that time, as our base has grown, more, more people coming into the sport, our knowledge that, that we're gaining from overseas, we're now spreading throughout here. Now we no longer need to go, because before we had to kind of travel to get a lot of that information, like a lot of the guys would go, um, I, I, I was one of the, I think I was the first Australian that went to for MMA, went to Tiger Muay Thai, one yep. of the first MMA fighters um, back in the day that went to uh, Tiger Muay Thai and was teaching there. Um, so we used to have to travel. We used to go to the US. Guys used to go to Greg Jackson's, to ATT, um, to Las Vegas, where there was a myriad of, of gyms. So we used to have to travel to get our knowledge. But now that we have that knowledge here, we're, we're bringing it back and now we're passing it on to the people here. So now our guys don't travel. They may travel a little bit, like I know Volko goes to New Zealand, but I kind of think that's still in our region, but he does it for the, the extra yep. training partners and the quality of the, the, the guys um, that are down there. We don't need to travel. We can, they do, and they will go do camps overseas just because if you can afford to, why not? Why not go to some of these other teams as well? But we no longer have to. We have everything um, we need in one place. As I said, here at, at Kings, we have every single um, element of training and recovery that you need to succeed. And that Kings is kind of a represent representation of Australia. We have everything we need here in Australia to achieve those results. Absolutely. Well, Elvis, it's been a pleasure, like getting into that mind of yours and, and, and really getting to understand like the, the fundamentals of where we've come from as, as a nation. And, and we're really thankful. Mate, before we go, UFC 251, let, let, let us go through the picks. Tell us who do you think is going to win and why? So Usman versus Burns, who, who do you have there and how? Um, look, I think Usman is going to do it. I mean, Burns is very dangerous. He's got great striking. Yep. Um, and obviously his jiu-jitsu is very high level. Um, but again, his jiu-jitsu is better on top. I think, I mean, he's dangerous off his back, but he's, he's much better on top. I don't think he's going to be able to take Usman down. Yep. I think Usman will strike with him. 
realize it's probably not a good idea and he's going to wrestle him. Usman is, is smart. He's, he won't. So what a lot of the wrestlers do nowadays is they'll pin you against the cage, wear you out and wait till the, uh, near the end of the round. They might take you down a couple of times to let you get up, take you down, let you get up to wear you out yep. and then take you down and hold you down at the end of the round to win the round. To punctuate. So I think yep. there's going to be, I think Usman is going to do a lot of that. I really would like to see Burns win. I think he's an exciting fighter. Um, he comes out to fight. And again, I'm a big fan. He has a very similar style to the way I did the Muay Thai striking with the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yep. Um, and just not afraid to, to go in there and give it all. I really enjoy it. But I just think Usman is going to out wrestle. He's going to wrestle him. He's going to pin him up against the cage. He's going to grind him. He's not going to make make it an excite, uh, uh, an overly exciting fight. I think he may try early and realize it's not a smart move. Yep. Obviously, there's always a chance that in a scramble that um, he may get caught in a sub or in a striking exchange, Burns will hurt him. But I don't think it will happen. It could. I, I don't underestimate Burns. But if I had to pick someone, it would be Usman by decision. Gotcha. Volkanovski or Holloway? Who, who wins in that rerun? Look, I can't say. I mean... I mean, Holloway always comes back better. He'll come back prepared. But I can't see what Holloway can do differently that Volko won't be prepared for. Holloway's style is, is very, I mean, it's volume-based, so you need great cardio. He's not going to out-cardio uh, Volko because, again, Volko's game is cardio. Yep. Um, he's not going to try and mix it up. He doesn't throw a lot of kicks um, he focuses mainly on his reach and his boxing. I think Volko has the skills to get onto the inside, make it a dirty boxing match, grind him against the fence, maybe put in a couple of takedowns. I don't think Volko will look to, a bit like his last fight, probably won't look to take him down, but will use the takedowns to set up his striking. Um, I think Volko is probably too, too well-rounded. And there's, I just don't think there's enough that Max can change in this short amount of time to change the re result for Volko. Gotcha. And the last one, Jan and Aldo. That's an interesting one. Yeah, it is. Look, um, look. I think um, Jan is too young, too explosive, too strong. Um, I think he's been around enough to have enough experience to handle Aldo. Um, even though I'm a massive Aldo fan, I want I would love to see Aldo come out and win. I was a fan of him from the WEC days when he came to the UFC. I was behind him. I predicted um, the success he'd have. Uh, if Aldo comes out like he did in the last couple of fights, yes, he is still very good. He is super skilled. But if he doesn't bring back those low kicks, he's not going to win. The guys have kind of worked out his game. He's got a great takedown defense, but I don't think um, Pedro's going to try and... He's, he's not going to try and... take. He might do, go for some takedowns to kind of set up his striking, but I don't think he's, his goal is to take him down. I think he's going to strike with him. Um, and if you can't stop him getting into range and unloading with those bombs, he's going to have problems. If he comes out and starts throwing those kicks the way he used to, the he way he did in the WEC days, the way he did in the early days in the UFC, um, I think he's a legit threat. My only concern is if he's worried about his cardio, he's not going to throw those kicks. So he's going to rely on his boxing. He has very sharp boxing. He has good head movement. He angles very well. But I think 
Jan has the ability to, to, to work with that because he has those as well. And I think his hands are heavier enough that he can put um, Aldo in danger, hopefully not stop him. Um, um, but yeah, I'm picking him to win over Aldo, though my preference is uh, for the Aldo win. Awesome. And the last one, Andrade and Rose. Um, this is a tough one. It's like um, Andrade is very diff dangerous. She, she's very strong, athletic. But you kind of know if you can keep her on the end of a jab, she struggles to get inside because she doesn't have good striking. Rose is very well-rounded. She can keep her on the end of the jab and keep her away. But Rose is also, um, she has confidence issues. It's probably a bit, she can be up and down with her performances. Um, I'm concerned that Andrade may be in her head from the last match. I think um, she may be worried about getting slammed or hurt again. Um, she had a very good strategy last time. Though I think it was foolish of her to try and hold on to the Kimura when she was getting slammed. I think it was smart to go for it. And if you could use it to break the grip and she, she managed to separate her hands. Yep. But as soon as the hands, as soon as she's lifted and the hands are, are separated, she should have been defending herself rather than trying to focus on the Kimura. If she comes in with that in mind, yep. she can win the match. Um, I just think she... Um, Andrade is going to be in her head and I look for Andrade to win again. Understood. Well, Elvis, thanks for your time again. Again, appreciate uh, appreciate you being in the show and, and chat soon. Always a pleasure to talk uh, jiu-jitsu and MMA and um, hopefully down the track, maybe we can get back on and, and talk um, some more because, hell, hell, I've got a lot of stories uh, that I need to get out before the CTE uh, kind of kicks in. <laughs> I, uh, I think I've chatted with a couple of... Uh, fighters and not not the older guys but uh you're relatively articulate mate so i think you, you got away at the right time <laughs> well as i said i'm a big uh part of what got me into uh, a lot of the recovery stuff is making sure that i didn't suffer the um the consequences of because i'll be honest i had a a, a fairly uh brutalish career i put my head on the line. It was a lot of exchanges. I wasn't afraid to exchange. I got in there, I mixed it up. I got knocked down, I bled a lot. So you look, I'm not going to say there's no CTE, but I think I've managed to mitigate it through diet, exercise, all the therapies and recovery I've brought here. Um, and as I said, and that's something I try and impart to my fighters because I want to ensure that they have long careers and that they have careers after their fight uh, careers are over. But I appreciate uh, your kind words, and I always like to finish off with, you know, it's good to be the king. Oh, and, there we uh, go. <laughs> back on again. Awesome. Chat soon, Elvis. Take care.